I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. Monuments, 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 monuments. <laughs> That's what the film needed. That is what the film needed. Just a good old monuments along. <laughs> you want to get into the war? Monuments, man. I have to put a team together and do our best to protect buildings, bridges, and art before the Nazis destroy everything. How many men? Six. Jesus. Well, with you at seven. That's much better. So you want to go into a war zone with some architects and artists and tell our boys what they can and cannot blow up. That's right. Aren't we a little old for that? Yes. We go through basic and then we wait for orders. Basic? A little help. Basic training. <laughs> oh boy. If you destroy an entire generation of people's culture, it's as if they never existed. We got company. Break, we gotta go! That's what Hitler wants. And it's the one thing we can't allow. So we get to shoot some Nazis? It's your responsibility now. I've never shot at anyone before. 
seem to have stepped on a landmine. Why'd you do something like that? What do you got? Lieutenant here seems to have found himself on top of an unexploded mine. Why would you do that? You all have been spending too much time together. Welcome everybody to the film board. This is a uh, very special, a very special monthly edition of the Film Board, The Next Reel, uh, The Next Reel, The Film Board, gotta get it right. Uh, I am Pete Wright, we've got, uh, oh, Andy Nelson is over there. Hello. And uh, Tom Metz is over there. Hello, friends. And that's it tonight. Uh, oh. Every, uh, yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. It's just the three of us. Uh, we schedules and uh, Arctic vortex uh, got in the way of us uh, this this month. Uh, but we are still talking about uh, the film that was scheduled, even though it's a little bit late, and that is the Monuments Men, George Clooney and his merry band of art rescuers. Uh, that should have been the subtitle for the movie, like colon. George Clooney and his very band of art rescuers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You guys are really... <laughs> now, I, ju- I know you've seen it now. You saw it more than a week ago, and I just saw it today. Uh, and so maybe you've had time for your experience with it to ripen and perhaps go brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fester like an open wound. But but I wonder if if you could tell me a little bit about why. Convince me why because uh, you know we're missing uh, the goodly Steve Sarmento, but he also is on the record as having liked this film. Yeah. And resented the mockery that has ensued in our back channel <laughs> communication and I find myself with him. I enjoyed this film, uh, directed by George Clooney, produced by George Clooney and Grant Heslov. Uh, based on the book, The Monuments Man by Robert Edsel. Um, why did this film not work for you? This was a film that, uh, you know, I really wanted to see. I loved the trailer. I loved the premise. I loved the fact that it was based on a true story of some people who really did create this this organization Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives program back in World War II to actually go save cultural important uh, artifacts. And um, I, I really wanted to see the movie. I was a little nervous when I learned that it was the release date was being pushed back from, uh, it was supposed to be a December release, and it got pushed back to, uh, to February. Oscar I, season to the graveyard. Right, exactly. I, I heard... Uh, that the reason that it was moved was not, in fact, that um, that it was getting bad reviews or anything, but that George Clooney actually asked the studio for more time for post-production due to the special effects not being ready and also because they were still trying to find the balance between the comedy and the serious tones. And he knew that it was going to push it out of award season, but um, he and the studio reluctantly moved it to February. Um, having heard that... The effects were great. I didn't notice any problems with any effects, so they really cleaned up those special effects nicely. As far as the balance between comedy <laughs> and drama 
they did not find the right balance between comedy and drama for me. It was really a, a, just a mismatched tones all the way through the film as far as am I supposed to be feeling this is a, uh, you know, the a, a Kelly's Heroes sort of uh, mid-war art heist sort of film? Is it supposed to be a serious uh, drama and the importance of art sort of film and the struggles that people are going through in these times? And uh, that was the biggest thing is I, I never felt that they found the right tone for the film. Plus, the uh, aside from that element of it, it, it also was it was really flat. It never had any great big you know peaks crescendoing at all. It just felt like it plodded along, and we had George Clooney's voiceover narration coming in, kind of telling us what was going on and explaining situations, and even the big build up to the end when they're uh, you know trying to do that one last rescue. It it came across very. I mean, they were trying to build tension into it by intercutting between uh, the the. Uh, the troops, yeah, the troops. Uh, well, the the guys trying to pull all the art out of this oh. mine where they found it, and with the Russians coming in to, you know, now that the Nazis had all fled, they were coming in to kind of reclaim their their uh, property, basically, or their territories, and uh, and yeah, so it was just there was, but they tried building this tension, and it was it ended up just falling very flat. The way they built that tension, trying to make something happen, and then all of a sudden. It cuts to, you know, and I don't think you mentioned spoiler territory at the beginning of the show, Pete, but we're spoiling this movie wholeheartedly, and I'm about to spoil it here, but... We won World War II. <laughs> we won World War II. <laughs> and not only did we save the art, but, you know, we left a nice American flag hanging over it. So clearly there wasn't that much... Uh, of a race against time for these guys because they had time to hang oh, funny. these guys and drive away. And, it, you know, all the tension really kind of, the steam was let out of it for me. And then as the Russians are coming up, before they even get there, George Clooney's narration kicks in again, explaining the scenario and how they managed to save all this art. And it's just like, well, okay, I and where did the tension just disappear to? It, clearly they weren't that concerned about it it just that was really it for me the the tonal imbalance all across the film and paired with really plotting story i agree 100% with andy um another thing to add on to his points is i felt that the screenplay and the film was nervous about its own script and story that it was delivering that it continually, while we're having these wildly fluctuating tone issues, all this kind of stuff, we are treated to speech after speech after speech, reminding us why this is important, why this is crucial, why this is as important as the people, <clears throat> excuse me, the soldiers dying in war, as if it doesn't believe itself. A movie shouldn't have to keep sort of justifying its own story throughout uh, and I felt it really did and that just sort of led to my um, not being able to get involved with it uh, I think it's such an interesting fascinating story and we instead we were given a lot of anecdotal scenes a lot of which didn't go anywhere uh, some weird uh, sort of humor that didn't really hit that much and also um, uh, a huge list of A-list actors who are none of them are given a character, a real fleshed-out character. They're known by a couple little traits, uh, and that's it. And so there's just really nothing to... And so when, and I won't spoil what yet, but uh, when some of those characters do die, I was left feeling nothing. 
because I never got to know them as characters. Uh, they were just sort of the sum of their little quirks. Yeah. Um, and the reason I'm being so harsh on it, because it's an affable film, is because of its pedigree. I love and respect everyone that was involved in it. And for something like this to just be so flat and such a misfire, it just, I feel coming down, I feel like coming down harder on it. And maybe that's not fair. You know, I, uh, it's funny. Um, I I find myself in a position of agreeing with you on uh, both of you on many points, but maybe just not to the degree uh, of, of finding the film not that strong. I, I think the, the biggest problem for me with the film was my expectation, and this gets to Tom's point about the pedigree of the film. I, mm-hmm. When I see a George Clooney, Matt Damon film, my expectation is now uh, Oceans. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and I know, I, you know, there's some division on on the greatness of oceans, but I happen to be a fan of those films. And and I love what they do for, um, you know, the big group kind of heist films. You know, I, 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 I like the ensemble cast films that that comes out of these uh, of these people. And so my expectation coming into the Monuments Men was that we were going to have these people this group of people who all are able to pull off this air of uh, being genuinely smarter than me in their wit and repartee. Uh, And I like watching them engage with one another. Uh, And that they are, you know, by doing so, they end up being, you know, funny and uh, funny and smart and not disrespectful to the job that they're doing. Right. That's my, that's my expectation. I wanted to see that kind of treatment uh, of, of this, you know, this particular material. Uh, and it wasn't that film. That that was not the film that that I got. And it took me a little while, I think, to get into the to the uh, sort of the vibe of of what they ended up creating. It. I, I'm I'm with you, Andy. I don't think it was as funny as maybe they had thought it was going to be. Uh, I I don't know why. Uh, but you know, maybe it's the subject matter. Maybe in general, uh, Hitler's not that funny. Um, <laughs> Unless it's springtime. Right, right. Uh, you know, but but what I do like about this film is I think it it it's important um, a, a, as a reminder uh, of you know what what happened to uh, you know art and culture in this period in history and and uh, I maybe I'm giving the film more credit than it deserves because uh, of the ambition to take on what otherwise could be a, a fairly dry topic, uh, but doing so in the interest of of cultural importance. So that you know, we don't forget. I I think it is important. I am. I, I found myself walking out deeply saddened by the underuse of some key members of the ensemble. Uh, I was very frustrated that Matt Damon was sort of off in his place with Kate Blanchett for so long in the film. Uh, even though there, I, I didn't. You know, I went in. I can't remember who it was who had complained that the the pieces with with Matt Damon and Kate Blanchett were just so long and and they, I didn't find them long. I just found him missing from the meat of the story from for you know a much longer than than I had wished. I think his his rapport with these other actors is so strong that I missed him <clears throat> in those Reporting. sequences. Yeah, and it ended up being sort of a, a you know a, a a film about multiple multiple little buddy stories. You know, as you have. Um, Bill Murray and Bob Balaban, you know, off doing uh, doing their thing, and and um, John Goodman and Jean Dujardin doing their thing, and and so you know, it just ended up being a little bit sideways for me. So I, I wonder. I don't know how much it has to do with anything, as far as Matt Damon and his 
place in the film. But from what I've read, Daniel Craig was actually originally cast in that role and then had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. And then Matt Damon came in and replaced him. And I'm guessing it was one of those George Clooney buddy calls saying, hey, you know, I just had Daniel Craig drop. Do you think you could come on board and just do his part for him? So I, I, I don't know if that's why Matt Damon seemed oddly out of place with George Clooney in particular because yeah. of that film relationship they have in the Oceans films and everything. Right. But because, I mean, I think Daniel Craig, I can I can see him being apart from George Clooney more. But I think you're right. I mean, I, I think you're definitely more of a fan of the Oceans films than I am. But I still when Matt Damon and George Clooney are in a film together, I still kind of expect them to be together because yes. of that repartee that they have. Right. Right. Uh, That's interesting to rethink about those scenes with Kate Blanchett with Daniel Craig. It, uh, it because totally they are different. so serious. Yeah. And not a part of that Matt with Matt Damon. And again, like you just said about the with Matt Damon and George Clooney movie, you expect the banter. You it just that's really interesting. Huh? Yeah, that does make me rethink um, rethink the film just in general a little bit, right? I mean, if you kind of imagine what Daniel Craig, just his presence in general, um, what that would would lend to the ensemble. Uh, but in general, I you know I I liked it. I thought Kate Blanchett was uh, I thought she was very strong. I liked her overall arc. I like uh, I loved the way she played. Uh, building trust over the course of this film. I felt like by the time they had dinner together, uh, that her handing over this incredibly valuable journal, uh, precious journal to her, uh, was uh, handing that over to Matt Damon was a uh, a real point to me. That was that was an, a, a bit of importance and weight, and I I love what she brings to that. Yes, um, you know when she that that whole sequence of dinner. You know when uh, when uh, you know when the French invite you to a formal dinner, you you know you come formal. Uh, <laughs> I never joke. Uh, you know that was that she just was wonderful. She was delightful to watch in that in that sequence, and and overall, in spite of you know the whole Daniel, Daniel Craig thing, I did think that the Matt Damon and Kate Blanchett uh, stuff was was good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed I, I enjoyed it because it it brought more of the sentimentality um, to the film, uh, and and you know interspersed with the the war stuff. I I think part of the problem that I had with it. And I'm interested in your reflection on this. Because of the timing of this story in relationship to the war, it always felt like these guys were struggling to find action of significance. Yeah. Therefore, it was not a, co- a buddy comedy. It was not an ensemble comedy. And it also wasn't really a war movie. Right. Right. And it really wasn't a heist film. I and mean, it, any parts right. of the heist part goes to the background. That's right. Right. Like, we missed the heist. It, we, it, it was, feels it, like we're it, always showing up a little bit too late. Yeah. The uh, And I think that speaks to the tone that they were trying to create, and maybe that's why they're trying to, trying to inject it with some of that that humor that seems to come from those, you know, the those 60s films with the the marching and the whistle, like the music with the whistling. Like as soon as I heard that, uh, it was instantly, it clicked me into the, you know, Kelly's heroes and just that whole vibe of those sorts of films from, from back then. And it just, 
I was struggling with that. And you're right. I really enjoyed the tone of the scenes with Matt Damon and Kate Blanchett. I think they did such a great job in those scenes, despite the fact that I found those a little more boring. And maybe that's just because it was really there. It just it 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 was such a tonal shift to jump to those moments that made them feel so much longer and more tedious. But I did really like that tone of the film. And if the whole film had that more uh, dramatic, serious tone across it, I feel like I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Yes, I don't know. I completely agree. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that's a casting issue. I mean, the fact that they're casting John Goodman and they're casting uh, uh, Bill Murray and. Uh, I mean, John Dujardin, to a certain extent, I mean, the artist, certainly, it was a very light and fluffy film, and he's a very congenial guy. And, uh, you know, Bob Balaban kind of has, has, I mean, he definitely has some serious stuff, but, I mean, you know, even he was in uh, The Lady in the Water. And so, <laughs> you know, he, he he goes into some territory of some not-so-great films. And So is that what this is, Andy? I, I mean, I, I think about that, too, right? The The whole, because all of these actors are, you know they're ex- they're phenomenally talented actors right and all of them have taken turns in wonderfully serious films right they all can do it mm-hmm. but are we so conditioned that when we see them together in an ensemble film like this that we just can't shake it uh, our expectation for comedy i don't think so because the i, I mean the the tone shifts i didn't feel came from me feeling like why isn't this more funny it's came comes from uh huge uh, like a really long for me very long scene with bob balaban and bill murray dealing with a soldier out in the woods a moment that come that has nothing to do with anything and right. comes to nothing yeah. except for just sort of some forced levity. Uh, I don't think that uh, I, it's a fact of me coming in looking for comedy and not finding it. I felt that uh, the way that the picture is written and directed, uh, there's whole scenes of just kind of affable, I'm sorry to keep using that word, but affable nonsense, like with Bill Murray and Bob Bal- Balaban with the soldier in the woods with and the score definitely becoming sort of very bouncy and fun during that point. Um, I felt that the film was forcing, trying to force me to feel different things at times light, at times dark. And I never was with it. I was never along with the ride. Um, not because I didn't want to be, but because it was just too sudden, too weird at times, too schmaltzy. Um, and then, to, yeah, I mean, there were times when I felt that they intercut sort of, you know, there would be a levity nonsense scene, uh, and then we'd go right into where soldiers are dying. Well, and yeah, like the, uh, just a couple points that strike me. I mean, you brought up the, the Bob Balaban and Bill Murray with the soldier in the woods, which was, it did seem so strange, but then there was the, um, the moment where they, they discover the art with uh with the the german uh, i can't remember the guy's name but the the one of the head germans the the stall is they find him at his at his house and discover that he's got lots of stolen art in his place so they track that down and i really enjoyed that scene i thought that was a great it was a great great scene scene. but didn't you feel like it was the wrong set of buddies that discovered them yes well in every case the buddies were always doing things that i wasn't expecting And also, like with Bill Murray and Bob Balaban, I mean, then 
you know, out of nowhere, Bob Balaban decides to play this record that Bill Murray got sent from his family, which, you know, tonally was so strange to me. I know Steve said he was really touched by that scene, but all I could think of is like, you know, here he is taking this this record that his family made for him and playing it on the speaker for everybody to hear. I was like, what if it was like some private intimate message? I, yeah. I don't know. It seemed really awkward that he would play it over the, the speakers for the entire company to hear. And, you know, it was nice seeing Bill Murray kind of have that little, you know, tender scene you know, by himself. But at the same time, it's like, God, that seemed really awkward. And then, of course, it's a Christmas song and they sing so well. And I don't know. I just I, again, it just that... I felt and just and also I, one of the big reasons that uh, a point that I made before I couldn't care is because I didn't care about Bill Murray. I didn't care about Bob Balaban. I feel like you can cast people that can have like automatic likability, like John Goodman, Bob Balaban, Bill Murray, in different order, but you can't just then rely on that. And that, I felt that yeah. just relying on that. That was, that was, uh, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about because at its, at its core, even though this is a, you know, this is based on a true story of a real unit. Um, at its core, this is a superhero team movie, right? I mean, that's what really what we're looking at. It's in terms of structure, it might as well have been the Avengers. And that's when he builds the team in the beginning, when he goes around and he gives all these letters to all these guys, that's our chance to get to know in just brief snippets uh, why these guys are important to the team. And for me, that is a sequence where this film falls woefully short in terms of allowing us to build an empathy for yes. each individual member. They, it happened so fast with no sense of context for why these guys are important, why they're there, what is their function, what is their role, what is a little bit of their backstory. We see them painting on something and scraping at something and building a building, but we don't hear them. We don't hear why they're members of the team. We just we just have them there relying on their familiar faces that we're going to get through it. And then that yes. backstory in so many ways is kind of peppered throughout the, sh the, the film, right? We hear, oh, well, Bal Balaban says, well, these guys are architects. Well, okay. I mean, I saw one of them building a building, didn't know that about the other guy. Um, so I, I felt like it, it that sequence, that absolutely critical building the team sequence failed. And I think that's part of why the team doesn't come together for me as an ensemble. 100% agree. Yeah, so do I. The, uh, the other thing that, that I f found tough, and I, I know it's, I feel like I'm being a little bit hard on the film, even though I'm the one who liked it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I keep going. This is yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's beginning to believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, this unit, the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives program, uh, you know, attached to the Allied Service, uh, this was a group uh, of 400 service members, right? I mean, between 1943 and 46. 400 people right. were dedicated to this program. And at, at 400 people, in this program, if you look at, uh, if you average out the total uh, number of pieces recovered, 5 million, that's 12,500 pieces of art, sculpture, and culture recovered per service member in this unit over three years. In our film, each of these seven members, two of them dead, but given the, the grace of, of uh, you know, uh, we're, we're going to suspend disbelief here, each 
one of these gents would be responsible for finding 714,285 pieces of art. Um, I, I felt like the scale and scope of the movement was artificially shrunk for us to make it a, a, a harder slog, so to speak. And uh, I missed, I, I found the film lacking for the lack of believable infrastructure behind it. Yeah. I and this don't... this may be me being as hard on this film uh, as as I was on the Abyss last week. I'm, I mean, I'm okay with that, but uh, I don't want to overthink it too much. But it really, this was a real thing, and and these all 400 of these people did you know great stuff. So, well, and how? Uh, let's see. Did this film start right at the beginning of the program, and did it did it take us all the way through? I'm trying to remember the the time. Like if there was ever a, a sense as to when we were supposed to be fitting. They never gave us a title card. They never yeah. gave us a title card, but we started with with the formation uh, I of the it team. Was, it was no, we started with actually it was uh, Goering or Goebbels. I'm sorry, um, in Kate Blanchett's office, picking right. out art for himself, and then we saw uh, right. George Clooney giving the speech to the president. That's right. Yeah, that uh, was Herman so Goering. It really was the beginning of it. But then it takes us all the way through the end. Yeah, through the end yeah, of yeah. 1945 when. Right. Uh, the surrender, the fall of yeah. the Eagle's Nest, yeah. So, think, yeah, it, there's never right. a sense that this group is growing. That's, that, that's yeah, it. That's yeah. my you point. Never, you never get a sense. It, it always feels like where whatever it is, it's just these seven guys against the Nazis. Right, these seven guys against the Nazis with no appreciable passage of time apart yeah. from major milestones, like beginning of, of the formation of the thing and the end of the war. Right. Uh, I there are pieces about it that I really like though, and that third act when they finally discover the twist about the mines, um, you know, I particularly liked that, and I I felt like the film finally built some intensity there uh, that that allowed me to coast more, and 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 you know, I was interested in how they uncovered the the mines and how they got into the mines and how they you know found the art. I just felt in general to echo you know something both of you have said. I didn't didn't. I didn't feel quite enough resonance that I wanted to feel uh, on discovering this art that they wanted to feel. And particularly at the end, you know, when they all come down to push the cart with the Madonna mm-hmm. um, statue, uh, it, it just didn't have the resonance uh, that, that I felt like it, it should have given. This is what the film sort of hung its hat on, so to speak, that it's right. this Madonna that we want back. This is the one thing in spite of right. the... The fifteen thousand other pieces in this particular mind. We want this one, and we're going to stake our own physical safety on finding this one by staying too late. And then we find it, and I just I felt like, oh, awesome. Woof. Well, and, and part of that is because <laughs> I mean, it really it doesn't sell it to me that they're saving that art because they that's an, a, a critical piece of art that needs to be saved. The only reason they're really putting any priority onto that particular Madonna is because they're Lieutenant Jeffries, played by, right. by Hugh Bonneville, he dies trying to defend that piece. Yeah. And so they do it kind of in his honor to make it so that he didn't die for nothing, um, which, I mean, is valiant. But at the same time, it's just like, yeah, but I, I don't know. It just it, it didn't give it any resonance, like you're saying. It, it, it kind yeah. of diminishes all of that. And, and even though, again, even though I liked it, at the end of the film, when Clooney is making his final assessment to the president, mm-hmm. he so asks... So many speeches. Oh, my gosh. He asks for permission to continue, and the president says, 
you know, really, seriously, you think in 30 years, you know, what would he have said? What would this, you know, this guy who's dead, what would he have said? Do you think he would have said uh, that it was worth it? And I don't know if it was delivery or what, but he might as well have been at a backyard picnic choking down a hot dog (laughs) as he says to the president, yeah, I think he would (laughs) have. Like that, that was the, that's the freaking point of the film and the service of these 400 people if in, in service of this as a true story i i think that the the cultural weight of what these guys did in an extremely trying time is is more substantive than that closing line um gave us and i think a lot of the the weight of the film hangs on the delivery of that bit and- if I can bring up a point that I brought up in the beginning when I felt when I said uh, that the film doesn't seem to at times believe in itself. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think you're right in that. It's constantly I mean, because what they did is amazing and what an amazing thing to do during a time of war. But I you know, the screenplay is constantly trying to uh, convince us of that. Yeah, I think. Do you think some of that came from I mean, because I. I read some critique somewhere saying, oh, Hollywood's patting itself on the back again. You know, of course, it's, you know, people having to save the art and Hollywood's going to make, you know, a movie about people saving art because they're all artists. And I mean, it's said in a very kind of a, you know, I, I thought it was a, a terrible opinion. I didn't agree with it. But I'm wondering if that was something that Clooney was conscious of when making the film and felt he had to go out of his way to try to dance around this, which ended up making it feel very unsure. Right. You know, I I think that's exactly, I mean, one of the big things, I applaud uh, George Clooney and Grant Heslov. They're probably some of the only people in Hollywood that could get this film made. Yeah. Um, And I think that the amount of, hoops that they jump through in order to get it made, casting such a huge amount of A-list actors, having these scenes of forced levity, um, while also trying to remind you that war is terrible and the soldiers are amazing, but again, soldiers are dying. But again, Picasso, I wonder if maybe it's just something that works as a book and not as a movie. It's just too <laughs> or as, hard. you know, real life. <laughs> it's something, oh. right. But you know what I mean, as far as like being able to really uh, emotionally and convincingly tell such a story. A book yeah. has so much more breadth and time and weight and all that kind of stuff. And doesn't have to try to boil it down into buddy moments. Doesn't have to boil it down into false Ticking clocks, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Can you guys, or even, or even a documentary? I mean, I would love to sit and watch a documentary about. Oh this yeah, and get a lot more meat about the real people who were doing this. But you know, I mean, that's I. I go back to, um, for example, Band of Brothers, uh, which is a, a, a miniseries that I could watch. I, I you know, I, I, I could watch it any time, any day. You put on a couple of sequences of Band of Brothers, and that's the quality that I have come to expect from my war movies, right? That are 
that are discussing this this incredibly powerful historical moment. And I did not get the quality of Band of Brothers in the Monuments Men, and that's what I expected from from this the treatment of this material. What do you guys? How do you guys compare this in terms of the script? Right, Clooney, uh, you know, leading the charge on the screenplay, comparing this to, for example, Ides of March or Good Night and Good Luck. I would put this at the bottom. I would put it. I would put it above Leatherheads, but still. <laughs> yeah, you know, I left that one out. I haven't seen it, so I and not being and, and I didn't mean to be sort of snarky about his misfires of this movie. But again, maybe the only way he could get it made was this attempt at a Kelly's Heroes, or was as I was saying before, like Great Escape yep. kind of feeling of like uh, it wants everything to be so light and fun and interesting. But then it also takes on World War II. Right. And it doesn't, it never chooses between the two as if it's trying to justify itself. Uh, I think that was one of the, because the reason I brought up Leatherheads is because Leatherheads, which I think was one of his biggest other misfires, uh, because he was trying to make sort of a, a madcap. What, uh, what are words for that? Like, in, like an old timey kind of comedy. Yeah. yeah it was, it was uh, meant to be that, that rapid dialogue sort of. Right. Feel to it, right? Yeah. And and I thought it completely I thought it completely missed the mark. And I feel this one did too. Uh of just the way of trying to ape that kind of a if you're going to try to ape that kind of a thing, then do it. Yeah. And don't look back. And this film was constantly looking over its own shoulder. Right. Hmm. I didn't care for what I just said, but, I, but <laughs> I, I believe in it. I don't like how I just said it, but, but you know what I mean? But I just, it, it was just so nervous in tone the entire time. Well, um, and that's why I go back to, I, I think for me, the, the most apt comparison in terms of screenplay is Good Night and Good Luck, uh, because it's another, it's a period film that, uh, you know, addresses um, important issues in an important industry, right? We go from the military-industrial complex circa the war to, uh, you know, huge period of media transformation. And, uh, you know, I to me, Good Night and Good Luck was, it was another, um, I would say, cautiously paced film. Uh, but I, I felt like the performances, the script lived up to the performances that, that delivered it. Absolutely, and and in this film, uh, I, I found it 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 fell short, um, and, and so you know I guess I'm I'm trying to find a pattern if there is a if there's a pattern to be found in terms of where you know where did this did this fall short? Is it strictly the screenplay? Is it is it casting? Is it? Uh, I I don't know that I that I can. I again I, my overall experience was was a positive one, but but I I really see the shortcomings in the film. It it does feel it it feels like just it has to be screenplay because I mean it all boils down to how it's written and then the tone uh, comes from that I mean if if you write one scene where it it has more levity to it and then you have these these intensely much more dramatic scenes between uh, Matt Damon's character and Kate Blanchett's character and you're bouncing back and forth it's going to create a strange tonal shift and. I, I mean, that's what I would say is are, are its faults. I mean, if you look at all the other films that he's directed, I haven't seen Leatherheads, but Ides of March, Leatherheads, Good Night, Good Luck, even Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, they all remain much truer to the tone that he sets out in the beginning, whether it's a more wacky tone or, or more serious tone. And I think that they all work much better because of that. I just don't feel that the script. And, and then I, I would also have to say the direction, it, it comes down to that. And, creating 
a misfire as far as the, the tone goes all across the board with this one. I have a guess. Do share. Um, and this might this is based on nothing at all. Um, oh, good. That's good. Yeah, you, <laughs> you like, like that? those? Yeah, set us up. Yeah, uh, when they said, I think it's laughable when they said that they needed more time to perfect the special effects. I don't remember any special effects. There's no smell. That's because they're so good. (laughs) Jean Dujardin wasn't even in this movie. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, unless John Goodman was just, like, avatared in, like, CGI, there's no special effects. He did look unreal tall in this film. Redo. I think that he tried to make a film and it didn't work. And a... and the stuff that did work was a little bit of the levity. And so they started sandwiching in all of this stuff with like Bob Balaban and Bill Murray in post. Maybe there were actually like reshoots that the reason that the film feels so disjointed at times is because they filmed a bunch more different scenes, whether it be the, uh, dramatic, I assume more the comedic later, and that's why it feels like all of these things are so sandwiched in together and hammered one after another and feels so disjointed is because they were never supposed to be together in the first place. That's mm-hmm. my fun guess. Hmm. Well, it's a good, it's a good theory. I mean, it, you know, I think that it could certainly make sense as to why it feels the way it does. Because he's just too good of a director. I yeah, mean, I, all of his films are so consistent in yeah. tone and right. manage things, manage pathos, but also humor so well. And this one is just a just a bunch of scenes put together at times. Yeah. The, yeah. Talk, talk to me about the cinematography. Uh, uh, cinematographer uh, uh, Faden Papa Michael, Michael, Papa Michael, Papa, he's Papa Greek. Michael. I don't know. How to, he's Greek. And it's all in Cyrillic. I can't even. <laughs> yeah, it's feeding Papa Michael, right? Uh, so he did. Uh, let's see. He did uh, Descendants, Ides of March. Uh, also did Nebraska, which um, you know we talked about enjoying. Um, what do you, what's your sense of how the cinematography approached this particular period? Do you think it did it justice? I, yeah, I mean, I didn't. There was nothing about it that struck me as. Uh, you know, strangely out of place. I mean, it all, it all looked fine. It didn't, you know, he wasn't trying to create anything um, new or different. I didn't think I, I thought it all looked, I mean, it all worked for me. I, I don't know. I didn't have any problems with it. It didn't stand out though. I agree. The things that stand out for me for the visuals was the editing. And I think it was probably because they were trying to go for, like you said before, a Kelly's heroes thing with such an old fashioned type of, yeah. Editing and filming sometimes with like this is the most cross dissolves I've seen in a film <laughs> in like in like a decade. And I know that that was probably on purpose as a throwback. Uh, that isn't something that gets me excited. But still, no, I had no problem with the cinematography. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm with you guys. I mean, I felt like, you know, what I, what I miss with the cinematography in general is uh, the movement of the camera that takes advantage of the opportunity of the material. And yeah, I I didn't find it took advantage of the opportunity, the material in terms of scope. I mean, when he says at the end, we took in five million pieces of art and culture and what we saw, I mean, there were a couple of sequences. I thought one of the powerful reveals was the discovery of the gold bullion, uh, you know, as the lights come on and we get to see, uh, you know, uh, 
Leonidas and, uh, you know, big man from Roseanne. Oh, what's his name? I already John Goodman. John Goodman. <laughs> uh, we get to see them kind of staring in, in awe at the, at the acres of, of gold uh, on the floor of this particular storage room. I thought that was a really nice reveal. Um, and, and I want more of the scope and scale of the material that we're looking at. And I, I just felt like it was, it was a little bit flat and constrained. Uh, and, and it, you know, there was, like Andy said, I, there was nothing new um, that, that embraced and extended our look at the war. And there have been such fantastic films about the war and this one just you know it's sort of it didn't it didn't do anything um it didn't attempt an approach that that you know was particularly novel i completely agree and there's this one part Ooh, i don't know if i have any of the nouns or verbs needed to (laughs) oh um, i can't wait it's it's when they're on monuments radio monuments men's radio or whatever when they're all talking to each other and they're like from like down the hall not in that scene but later oh. when i guess maybe it's not on monuments radio but they have their walkie talkies but they're talking to each other from across the country it seems like okay. um uh, and they go how's it going and you get a shot of george clooney with his with a helmet on saying it's getting really he says something like it's getting really really messy here and you see sort of a jeep go by <laughs> And that was it. And I was like, oh, I don't believe this. Like, I, I know. That looks about believe... as bad as the, like, the pumpkin field where I got my pumpkins at Halloween this year. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I was just kind of like, I don't believe in the war that you're telling me about. And I know for a fact that it happened because there's been books about it. <laughs> uh, but I was just, it's, but I mean, I, the only reason I bring that up is because the, the idea of scope of, like, it's sort of a medium shot with uh, Jeeps going by in the background. Uh, and you see sort of some rubble, but nothing else. And yeah, you you kind of like how when we said with some of us said with uh, Jake Ryan Shadow Monster that like this <laughs> this would have been really good if the Bourne movies hadn't been made and if James Bond hadn't been rebooted. Yes, we need better things. If you're gonna keep telling us that this is an important war movie, we need to see some war. Take for example, and this was one that I wrote down. The landing of the Monuments Men on the beaches at Normandy. Yeah. Now, I I don't want to belittle their landing there because they all stood around and looked like it was really important. Mm-hmm. But to me, it looked very much like they just finished shooting Saving Private Ryan, and then the next day they came back and shot this. Right. Yeah. Like. It, it there there I did not share the sense of awe and uh, because it was all it was just like not enough not enough and and perhaps this falls on Clooney perhaps it falls on just overall production design um, uh, but but there were so many sequences where it was just not enough and that that one really stood out to me. Well, and that's one of those ones where it's like I, I understand that maybe there's some importance in the context of their story kind of as the as the afterthought army kind of coming in to to try to rescue these things but they're not obviously front line type of people so we don't get that saving private ryan story but in that sense at the same time i also felt like the power of them landing on the beach really was diminished period and did they even need that scene to be there it really didn't carry any weight as far as me understanding the context of who these guys are and what their mission is it came down to seeing them on the beach looking around like, yeah, like you said, it looked like they were looking at an old movie set. 
that was getting ready to get taken down. And then they go off to do something, you know, trying to save the art. I didn't need it to be there. Yeah, I mean, you think about other films that have done the the war is just behind us sequences, right? You know, I mean, we've where where we're we're stepping on um, a big battle that just happened, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, I'm I'm thinking of films like um, you know. God, even Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. even crying out loud, Luke discovers Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru had more weight than these guys landing on Normandy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I uh, yeah, it just it just wasn't there. I'm it glad actually, Tom laughed it, at that because that was like that was like my only laugh line in the entire show. I, I, <laughs> and it actually it because maybe because of the set design, because of the awe that I wasn't feeling, it undercut, it hurt their cause for me. Yeah. I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, you guys aren't soldiers. What you're doing, I, and, you know, I don't I don't want to go out on a limb, but just sort of saying, like, because the movie was so unsure of itself, I know I've said that over and over again, it was scenes like that was, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, this isn't as important. Yeah. As people storming the beach in Normandy. I guess, uh, I don't know, I go back and forth on that. But that was a weird, that just seemed like one of those things, like how you said there were no title cards of where we are, of just, remember the war? Here's where we are now. Right. 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 In a way that I thought actually hurt the film and hurt the cause for these. And then we did get a title card in 1977. Right, when it comes to years later when he comes brings his son to the statue. Which seemed like a weird placement for a title card, because right. normally well, we when you expect a, yeah. when you expect a title card, you know, to bring us up to current, but he's just bringing us up to you know three decades ago, right? <laughs> uh, so I don't know. Uh, what else? Uh, what else stands out that you want to talk about? Uh, well, just as one quick thing, not that it's hugely important, but. George Clooney's father played the old George Clooney character in that scene in 1977. That wasn't George Clooney in makeup? It was his dad. That's adorable. Isn't you know it? what? It's funny that you thought it was George Clooney in makeup. I actually thought they somehow... Where's, where's the original guy? Stokes. Oh, that would make sense. I, yeah. I assumed it was him. Uh, apparently not. Nope. Probably no one that was involved in the Monuments Men looked like George Clooney. Oh, it's because it was loosely based on George Stout, who died in 1978, uh, which is why they had they probably brought it up only to 1977. Probably. Just under the wire. <laughs> because 1979, the scene would have been much more dour. <laughs> wah, wah. Oh man! What are you, me? (laughs) (laughs) That is the the jokes that that almost get cut out of the podcast. (laughs) That is the finest compliment I have ever been given, Thomas. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I, you know, I I think we. It is possible that we may have have said all that needs to be said about this film. A final, final uh, words and reviews. I, I bet I know what I'm what I'm going to hear from you guys. But wrap it up, Andy. You know, I I wanted to like this film. I love the idea of what actually happened of this of this true story of these monuments men. But as a film, I I it's a pass for me. It was it was lifeless, dull, and totally all over the place. I uh, I would never want to watch it again. <laughs> wow, Tom, do you have anything to add to that? 
I loved it. <laughs> uh, no, I thought, I, as I said in the beginning, it was um, the reason I'm being so hard on the film is because of the pedigree. And uh, and by the pedigree, really, I mean, like, Grant Heslov and George Clooney. Um, I'm glad that this story... No, I'm not, because this story <laughs> deserves better. Uh, it's just it's just this story deserves better. And I think it could have been done better. Having a movie d- destroying the idea of the Kelly's hero, the gang of misfits, all that stuff, and having it have the tone of the scenes between Matt Damon and Kate Blanchett is a movie that I would desperately like to see. And this just wasn't it. Okay, well... Uh, uh, at depth, I agree with both of you, except for the part about that this was not an enjoyable film. I did find myself enjoying the film after you know the first act. I was absolutely able to kind of let myself go in it and, and enjoy it, in spite of the fact that it was tonally muted, and uh, and there were some things that if you stop to overthink, you might find you'd be able to contest the film. And yet, um, it, it represents something that is an, an important part of history and. Uh, it's a story that needs to be told and continue to be told. And there are other films about this, uh, uh, this you know, um, uh, time in our history. And uh, uh, the, my dad's favorite uh, of them, and this is, I didn't really make the connection until I was telling him we were doing uh, this film, um, is the John Frankenheimer film, The Train, 1964, with Burt Lancaster. Oh, right. Yeah. And and so this is I sort of grew up. Uh, this is one of those films, you know, where you grow up and and in the background, your dad is watching this film. And so I didn't really know what it was what it was about. But uh, but I've always heard the train is good, but I've never yeah. had a chance to see it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, probably see that one if you if you have a choice, see that. Uh, anyhow, uh, let's uh, rank it. All right, Tommy. Re- <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible time to take a sip of water. Um, oh, you mean flick chart? <laughs> flick chart, flick chart, put on a seatbelt because it's flick chart. Yeah! <laughs> All right, worth it. It gets better and better. <laughs> Every week. Uh, I should probably give some more definition to that. Uh, we you should head over to flickchart.com uh, slash oh, yeah, the next chart. Flick chart. <laughs> This is actually now, Pete. This oh, is yeah. flickchart.com slash TNR Film Board. TNR Film Board. We have a whole new stack ranking for just the film board, and it's because we were trying to duck all those awkward moments when uh, we asked Tom to rank yeah. whatever film we're talking about to Cloud Atlas, and <laughs> <laughs> which he refuses to Girl, see or on principle alone. <laughs> right. I don't know what any of those things are. And so here we are, headed out there. You can follow follow that account if you just want to hang out with our current release films uh, series. Absolutely. And, and oddly enough, Cloud Atlas being a film board film, the first option is oh, Minus Men or Cloud Atlas. Which Tom still hasn't seen. <laughs> Dang it. Ah. Epstein. Uh, uh, Cloud Atlas. I would do Cloud Atlas as well. So there oh, you go. this is going to be and I, sad. And I do have Steve's uh, rankings, too. He emailed them to me, so I should check. He would pick, uh, let's see. Oh, Monuments he, has, he hasn't seen Cloud Atlas. That's the one he hasn't seen. So it's you and me, baby. Cloud Excellent. Atlas it right. is. Monuments Men or The Wolverine. Mm-hmm. I, I would do Wolverine over Monuments Men just to watch the bullet train. Yep, Wolverine. I always forget about the bullet train. Wolverine. 
What does Steve say? He says, uh, he says Monuments Men. I'm going to have to go to the Wolverine. All right. Again, just in terms of what film I would put on, like, right now. Yeah, sure. Monuments Men or Oz the Great and Powerful? Monuments Men. I dare you. Oh, man. (laughs) I dare you. Monuments Men. (laughs) I, it, I actually would do Monuments Men over Oz the Great and Powerful, because that was wretched so all right uh, it's not at the, the bottom end. of our list <laughs> art and culture survives oz the great and powerful That's right the monuments men or now you see me the monuments men monuments men yeah you guys are I, lucky we've done such terrible films that's right. Are we? Because <laughs> this is starting to sound like a lose-lose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, there we are. It's number 16 out of 19 on our flick chart. Only Now You See Me, Oz the Great and Powerful, and Your Next are below it. All right. Wow. All right. Well, uh, hey, this was a real treat, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that I mean those words. Uh, but uh, thank you, Tommy, as always. Thank you very much, everybody. It's a treat to have you here. Andy, uh, you too, man. You bet, man. Always fun. Always fun. Uh, No idea what we're doing next month, but uh, you can bet, because Mike and Steve and Chad are not on the show, that me and Andy and Tom are going to pick it and force them to watch it. So uh, (laughs) thanks, everybody. Check us out at thenextreel.com. Follow us in iTunes, and uh, we'll catch you next time on The Next Reel. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on the Film Board and the rest of the Next Reel's family of podcasts, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. There are so many great adaptations we've covered on the Film Board, available in audio form. The Bourne Legacy, Cloud Atlas, all three Hobbit movies. The book is so much better. Oz the Great and Powerful or World War Z. There was The Monuments Men. The first two Divergent movies, and Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, I heard that book was awesome. What was it called again? All You Need Is Kill by Hiroshi Sakurazaka. Terrible title in either case, but a great read and a great movie. Absolutely. There's also The White Tiger and Stephen King's It. Plus Dune, which is one of my audiobook favorites. Oh, mine too. You know, producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. So now we're appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support the Fillboard and the Next Reels family of podcasts. I've been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I've read hundreds of books through it. Couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free trial and get your first free audiobook at thenextreel.com slash audible. 
Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.